And that, that's kind of where I want to focus in this series is we're going to look in our We Are Vineyard series. Now, this is not a we are vineyard, therefore we are the best and the brightest and everyone should be like us. No, I, I, I actually, you heard quite a few different versions over the week at the conference of, you know, we're kind of a ragtag bunch of of misfits sometimes, you know, we're, or, or we're the weirdos or, you know, it's like, we don't always fit in every other box. We don't always fit the mold, but yet vineyard was God's idea. This is not something that a group of people got together and said, you know, we should have a denomination that's about these specific things. No, this idea of what we call vineyard was actually birthed by God. It was his idea And here's what I heard over and over again through the week, and that I want to share a little bit with you this morning, is that in that, God gave us as vineyard people, and we are kingdom people first, right? Like, I don't want to overemphasize what they talked this week about, being honest that we are are a denomination. People often ask, you know, well, well, what denomination is it? Well, vineyard is its own denomination, but we also want to avoid denominationalism like overemphasizing or becoming, you know, it's like we are kingdom people first. We are sons and daughters of God first who are about his work and his kingdom. But it's also okay to recognize that as God birthed this movement, what he did was he gave us as a group of people a gift to steward, and that gift is for the benefit of the whole church. It's not just for us. And I could take time, maybe I will some other day, to, to tell you more of the stories of how in the early days of the vineyard especially, what God did in the vineyard and what became part of our unique flavor had significant impact all over the world. Matter of fact, I heard it said this week that numerically, we're, we're really compared to other denominations, we're not that large. Like there's about 120,000 people in the United States. By comparison, the Southern Baptist denomination is like 15 million or so. I, I don't, I've not checked the current numbers. You know, but it's like we're, we're a relatively small group. And we're not necessarily always the best. But it was said that Vineyard, even being a smaller group and, and a relatively young group, you know, we've only existed as a, as a movement for 40 years compared to hundreds and hundreds of years of church. But even in light of those things, it was said that vineyard punches above its weight. In other words, that's not again to say that we're better, but it's like what God has given us and what he has tried to do through us has had an impact that outweighs what we would be able to do on our own. Given our size, given our age, given our, uh, our sort of status in the, in the worldwide church, the impact that the things that God has done clearly demonstrates that God is about doing things, not just through our movement, through all, but, but he's done things that go beyond what we would be able to do. One of the gifts, and so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to explore some, some what I call vineyard distinctives. In other words, these are things that are distinct, are, are different about us. Again, not making us better than anyone else, but understanding our unique flavor and some of the gifts that we carry that we're about. Before we jump in, let's just go ahead and pray one more time. Jesus, 
we welcome you. Holy Spirit, come. We're here for you. And we thank you that you're here with us. Not just in our hearts, although you're there also. We thank you that you are active in this physical space. That you are meeting with us. That you are tangible. That you are reachable. That you are, if I can make up a word, feelable. I thank you for that, Jesus. Amen. So, to start off with today, we're going to talk about being a worshiping community or a community of worshipers of God. This is one of the gifts that the Lord birthed through the vineyard. And so we like to say it, it, it's part of our birthright. People often remark, even here in our local church, that one of the things that sticks out to them uh, the first or second or third time they attend a vineyard church is there's something different about the worship experience. Now, they don't always say that it's better. We don't always have, you know, the absolute... Now, we have incredibly musicians here. But my point is, like, that's that's not what it's about. People are not saying, well, they have the best music. There's something about the way that we focus our worship and invite the presence of God. And, and just to go back for a moment, if you've not explored the history... You know, when vineyard worship sort of first came on the scene, it was not necessarily common to sing, as we do regularly here, to sing songs to God, like which, which recognizes that he, he's actually, not only is he listening, but like he's, he's present. You know, I, I grew up in a church that we love to sing. I come from a family that loves to sing. Matter of fact, in my younger years, all of us, my most of us, I guess, myself, my mom, my aunt, my uncle, my grandma, and then my great aunt would play the piano. We would sing together as a family at church. And um, we sang a lot of songs about God. And I'm not saying that those are bad things. Uh, but one of the things that's different about vineyard worship is that we're actually singing to God most of the time. We're recognizing that he is present. And we're expressing, we're declaring, we're giving our love, our adoration, our honor to him. I like to think of it this way. You know, we talk a lot about being a movement that is centered around kingdom theology. Well, another way that I might put that is that we are centered on the king, who is Jesus, and his kingdom. And, and that's not just like a slogan for a bumper sticker. That's actually what's happening in worship, is that we're not singing to teach, although some songs teach us. That sometimes happens. Our primary purpose, and, and just to over-clarify, singing is not the only way that hopefully you'll understand a broader definition of worship, that yes, it happens when we gather here and we, and we sing, 
But the act of singing is not worship. It's singing. It's, it's vocalizing. It's verbalizing. It's a good thing to do. But worship, as I said in our last series, is something that happens in the cracks. It's a heart posture. It's a recognition that is then given expression to the understanding that it's all about him, that he's worthy, that he's all in all, that he's the only one, that he's set apart, that he's great, that he's our majestic king, that he's our good, good father, that he loves us, that he knows us, that it just it's just giving expression to that reality that he is king and Lord over all. And coming, as I said during communion, in an act of expressing that, a mutual self-giving, saying, Lord, I recognize that you are all in all. I recognize that you are Lord. Now, Lord means like, he, he, he's, he's above my pay grade. He's, he's the one that's in charge. When I heard it said, you know, sometimes it's like if you think of a business or an organization and you're the CEO in a healthy corporate culture, if a problem makes its way to your desk, you probably are safe in saying, if this could be solved at a lower level, it probably would have been, right? So it's like, now, now don't, don't take that analogy too far. We're not saying that Jesus is the CEO of our, well, on the corporate level, I mean, he is. We say he's the head of the church. But when you're thinking about him as Lord, it's like he is the one that is over all. He's, he's over everything. He's, he's, he's the big kahuna. He's the, he's the guy upstairs. And yet, he's your brother. He's your friend. He's your partner. He's, he's with you. So in other words, there's this tension or this juxtaposition between, uh, and we could spend an infinite amount of time declaring how great, how, like, like universe level. You know, it's like, and, and at the same time, that, that lives in tension. To, he's never too big. He's never too busy. He's never too far away to be intimately equated with the most minute of detail of your personal life and to be present with you in the moment, to, to be at that, that arm's length away. To, to, to be with you. And what happens in worship, sometimes even more than what we sing and express, is just taking time to dial into that reality, to allow ourselves to recognize His presence, and to realize that I don't have to pray and talk to Him as if He's in some far-off place, Oh, Lord, would you come down and, you know, be amongst us, these peasants? No. Jesus, you're right here. And you know one of the cool things about when you have a friend that, that is like less than an arm's length away? He already sees and knows what's going on. He, he has a, a, a familiarity with your experience. And so you can be completely yourself. You don't have to be guarded. You don't have to behave in a certain way as if you're in, you know, 
so let's let's back up and say it this way. You know, we all recognize earthly authority, right? How much sort of etiquette and decorum and things are required, you know, if we were to meet with some world leader, right? I would probably go get a new suit. Like I would dress a certain way. I would be asking lots of questions about, you know, you know, like where do, where do I stand? And, and, you know, just like all different kinds of things because of the position of the person I might be meeting with. And although God is far above any ruler you could possibly meet with on the earth, he doesn't require any of that because he actually never leaves us. He's, he's with us at all times, present with us, and, and says, I made you. I know every hair on your head. I know every freckle, every little blemish, every wrinkle. Like there's nothing that's hidden. And so hopefully, if we're able to enter into that reality, it allows us to let our guard down. I I don't have to pretend like I've got it all together. I don't have to pretend like I know all the answers or I know how to deal with these emotions of mine that are beyond what I want them to be. I don't have to pretend... And put a smile on my face when my heart is hurting. I can be exactly who I am, exactly where I am, and know that I'm safe in the presence of my Savior and my best friend. That's what we're inviting you into when we talk about worship. It's this relational communion that is intimate. With the king of the universe, yes, but also with my closest friend. Now, it might be, you might be thinking, I don't, I don't know if I, I feel that way. I don't know if I feel like he's my best friend. Well, all I would say to you for now is that he wants to be. He's not put off by what you think might be putting him off. He's probably not as far away as you feel feel like he is. And and now I know for a lot of you there're going to be thoughts pop in your head to to push back against this. But I can say with every ounce of conviction that I can muster and and from my understanding of his word and his spirit and his character he wants to be in that kind of relationship with you. Regardless of what your life has looked like, regardless of what you've done, there, there's, there are no disqualifiers. Because underneath the surface of everything that we think about ourselves, everything, every mistake we've made, every wrong thing we've done, however we feel like we've messed up our life or the way we've lived, underneath all of that, deep down at the deepest level, is what He created. And He knows that you, you really are. And what he's trying to do as he encounters you, as he becomes closer to you, is help you discover that good thing that he created that's in you. And he's willing to do that work with you. And this is one of the things that happens in worship. See, we sometimes think, you know, 
Yeah, I, I get, you know, I get a peaceful sensation when, when I worship. Good. Like, I, I, hope that, I hope that when you come into the, a gathering like this, that, that you can leave feeling more at peace. If you came in feeling tense, I would just pray that you would encounter the king and his kingdom in a way that you feel more at ease when you leave. But one of the things that we often neglect that happens anytime we get into the presence of Jesus, and I don't just mean in a corporate gathering like this, is that if we open ourselves up, if we allow him, if we make a practice of worship and engaging his presence, he will change us. He will transform us. Now, some of you are like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't want that. I, I kind of like who I am. Well, it's not changing who you are. The reality is it's taking away those things that are, that are not good, those things that are not helpful. I, I have this habit, and I just can't seem to break it, and it drives me nuts, and I don't want to do it, but I just keep doing it. Let Jesus come in and help transform you. Let his grace empower you to live a different way. Because the truth is he made you And what he made is good. And so if the fruit of your life doesn't look like good things, invite Jesus to help transform it so that it can. Now that, for sure, friends, that's going to be a process. I'm not saying it's a magic prayer and by the time you say amen, everything's going to be lined up and perfect. No. We have a very real enemy that doesn't want us to tap into this truth, this reality. He actually wants all the worship and glory for himself. And he knows beyond the shadow of a doubt, and I hope that the Spirit will help give you this conviction today, that if the people of God would get an accurate picture of two things, an accurate picture of who God is, that he's not an angry, vengeful kid up there with a magnifying glass, you know, that he's actually good all the time, in all ways, in all circumstances, that he loves you intimately, that he has time for you, that he sees you, that he wants this relationship with you. And then on the flip side of that, begin to understand what his picture of you is. And in that, find your identity. Don't identify yourself based off of the things you've done in your past. Don't say, well, you know, I try to be good, but, you know, in the past I've had a problem with lying, so I'm a liar. That's not what Jesus says about you. Now, I'm not saying to abdicate responsibility for your choices. If you've done something wrong, you need to own up responsibility for it and invite Jesus to help you change it. But those things that you do or have done do not identify who you are. The only one that gets to decide and identify who you are is the one who made you. If I brought Arthur's Legos up here and spread them out on the table, and this doesn't sound half bad to me right now, but and built some sort of, 
unique little creative creation, whatever it is. I, I tip, I'm, I'm a little bit of an architecture nerd, so I almost always build houses or buildings of some sort. But if I were to build that, who do you think gets to decide what that is? I do, because I made it. The same is true for us. The one who made you has already decided before the foundation of the earth what and who you would be. Now, that may not be reflected in your current circumstances. That may not be what you're currently experiencing. But at the deepest level of who you are, you are a good creation. And this journey that we're on in life is about mining that out, about allowing Jesus to help you understand that and walk into it. I want to look at one little section of Scripture real quick before we wrap up. Um, Actually, before that, let's look at this quote because we need to talk about this for just a second. This is a quote from John Wimber. From the very outset of our ministry meaning Vineyard and and his early, John's personal early ministry. We made worship our highest priority, believing that it is God's desire that we become first worshipers of God. Everything else that we are asked and called and tasked to do will be enabled by becoming a worshiper of God by encountering Him, by adoring Him, by giving Him His rightful place. We cannot say that we are a people who center everything around the kingdom of God and not have a practice of worshiping the King of that kingdom. He is everything. And He's worth what what we give. We, We used to like to say... When you worship risk, you think, well, what, what does that mean? Risk. And for us here in, in America and in this cultural context, it's a pretty low risk. We heard from some incredible missionaries at the conference that their risk is far beyond what you could ever imagine. The fact that they're not in a grave somewhere is a miracle of God. And they, that was a present and tangible reality to them, and yet they pressed forward. They risked for the kingdom. And I would love to share that story, but they're from a restricted country, so none of that media is available because that would further endanger their safety. They've already served jail time once for being Christians and for speaking up. But for us, it might be something as simple as People might think I'm a weirdo if I raise my hands during worship. You know, if I approach that cashier at the grocery store that I think God has a word for and I say it out loud, I might get it wrong and they might think I'm on something. Risk. God loves to meet you at the point of risk. We also say, some of you are going to know this, How is faith spelled? R-I-S-K. Stepping out, taking the risk 
and expecting God to meet you in the risk. Worship is who we are. It informs everything else that we do. Let's look at this one scripture from Romans 1, just a couple of verses, starting in 21. And I encourage you to go back, you know, anytime it references back, but we're not going to take time this morning. We're going to start right in verse 21. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols that looked like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Now that might sound silly to us. We think we're, we're, you know, we're, we're probably a little brighter than that. We're probably not, you know, if I got Daniel to come in here in a bird costume, we're probably smart enough to think, yeah, let's worship that guy instead of Jesus. We're probably not going to fall for it. But, but I want you to go back and pay attention to something. that Because it says that they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him. They wouldn't give him thanks. They wouldn't come to him with thanksgiving. And I'm and I'm adding language here, but it's like, as a result, they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. If you don't make a practice of worshiping God, you cannot know what He's like. In worship, you will see and feel and know the goodness of the Father. You will begin to understand his character. You will begin to have a tangible experience of how much he loves you, of how important you are to him. I want to share one more quick story from the conference. I'm trying to remember, I think it was... Monday night. We go to sleep. Our beds are not great, by the way. But it's fine. You know, you, you expect that. And I'm a little bit of a homebody. Like, I love to travel, but I like to sleep in my bed. I go to sleep, and sometime in the night, I have one of the most vivid, intense, visceral dreams probably of my life, just because of the physical intensity attached to it. And I actually don't remember all of it. And this may not make entire sense to everybody, but I think there's something to grab onto for some of you. All I can remember, some there was different people in the room and, and someone was, was talking and sharing. And in this moment, I experienced a, a shift you know, I, I've used this a phrase similar to this a lot, telling you, you know, the words of, of Jesus, like his words are life. In this dream, somehow, I'm, I'm still struggling a little bit for language to try to articulate the experience, but it was like I knew, I had a new level of reality, of understanding, to the point that it was a physical 
sensation. It was like an overwhelming conviction that I could tangibly feel in my body that his words are life. There are people all around our community and all around the world that don't even have a taste of that reality. That the very word of God, we love to go to the creation story and and understand how he spoke and everything that now exists came into being because he spoke. But you know, actually the greater miracle than that is that through his words, he actually gives life, spiritual, real, everlasting life to his kids. He can simply speak it, breathe it, and you can enter into life. Real, meaningful, more abundant life. And and I wish I could I wish I could convey to you the the accompanying feeling and and conviction that his words are life. 